kind of hesitated as I turned my mic on because the last couple of times I've done that, it's been loud. We got the experts back there today, though. Good job. Hey, if you're a guest of ours, we are especially uh, honored to see you with us. Uh, we're glad that you chose to worship with us this morning here at Bay Area. I want to begin with a story that probably most of you have heard. It's about a guy living up north, uh, decides to go out on a frozen lake one day and do some ice fishing. So he walks out on the lake, he drills a little hole there in the ice, plops a line down and starts fishing. He sits out there for over an hour, not a nibble, nothing. A teenager comes walking onto the ice, not too far from where the older guy's fishing, and he, he drills a hole in the ice, drops a line in. As soon as the line hits the water, a fish hits it. He pulls this huge fish out. And the old guy thinks, well, that's just, you know, dumb luck. But the kid throws another line in, catches another fish, another fish, another fish. He's pulling them out hand over fist. So the old fellow finally walks over and says, Hey, son, I've been out here for over an hour. I haven't got a nibble. How are you catching so many fish? What's your secret? The kid looks at him and says, The guy says, What? I can't understand a word you're saying. So the kid spits into his hand and says, You've got to keep your worms warm. I'm not much of a fisherman. I don't keep my worms warm. But I have been told that to be a good fisherman, you have to think like a fish. And I've also been told that it's really not that hard to think like a fish. Fish really aren't that bright. In fact, here's how a fish thinks. Sea bug, want bug, eat bug. Pretty much it. You know, fish don't stand around uh, uh, thinking about the arc of their life. I don't think a female fish goes up to a male fish and says, I'm not as sure you're committed to this relationship as I am. Now, fish don't say things like that. Fish don't say things, do you, do you like my mind or am I just another pretty body to you? And they don't say things like that. Fish, fish are dumb. And it strikes me just how dumb fish really are. Although I said that first service and somebody said, you know, if they're so dumb, why can't you ever catch them? But they are dumb. Here's what we're basically telling a fish. Hey, fish, swallow this. It's not real. In fact, it's plastic. You're not going to like it. You think you're going to like it, but you're not going to like it. You think it's going to feed you, but it's not going to feed you. In fact, it's a trap. If you look carefully, there's a very sharp hook mixed in there. And once you bite it, you're hooked. And once you're hooked, you're finished. Because it's just a matter of time before your enemy reels you in. You know, what do you call a group of fish? They live in schools, right? They live their whole life in schools, but they never learn anything. And you can insert your own gator seminole or bull's joke there if you'd like, but they live in schools all their life, but they never learn anything. Aren't you glad that we're smarter than that? Aren't you glad that we're so much smarter? Guy said to his wife one day, I don't know how in the world you can be so beautiful and yet be so dumb. And his wife said, well, God made me beautiful so that you would love me. And he made me dumb so that I would love you. <laughs> Aren't you glad that's just a joke? Really. 
Aren't you glad that's just a joke? A governor, brilliant guy from a huge state, unlimited political potential, made a name largely for, for himself, largely because of his hard stance on prostitution. Come to find out that he has been a client of the same group that he's railed against for so long. He, he loses his family, he loses his position, loses his reputation. Two days after the person taking his place uh, is sworn into office, he holds a press conference revealing that he and his wife both had extramarital affairs. Kind of uh, preemptive protection, I guess. A famous preacher with a worldwide television audience who has preached very sternly about sexual sins, come to find out his, his private lifestyle, he's, he's indulged in the very same things that he's preached against for so long. A husband who has a sexual addiction, he's carried around with him shame and, and guilt for years. Feels like he can never be close to God, never be close to his wife, not in the way she needs him to be. A wife who has been in a loveless marriage, always considered herself the victim until she gets mixed up in an emotional affair with a man who's not her husband, blows up two families, and the stories go on and on and on. Apparently some people really have a problem dealing with some of the things that we don't like to talk about very often. But again, aren't you glad that's not us? Aren't you glad that we're all stable healthy, sane individuals with, with perfect, impeccable marriages. We have been going through this sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and I've been telling you that it's the most famous sermon that's ever been preached. But I've also mentioned that even though it's such a famous sermon, there's a lot of people who don't know very much about the Sermon on the Mount. If you'll remember when we introduced this series, I told you that in a, in a survey that was done, the majority of Americans believe that Billy Graham preached the Sermon on the Mount. If you weren't here for that particular sermon, it was Jesus, okay? Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. But a lot of people, maybe most people, think that the Sermon on the Mount is kind of a, just a collection of kind of magical, mystical sayings that Jesus is spouting, and, and maybe someday somebody's going to come along and kind of explain it all to us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are the meek, and go out and be salt, and Go out and be light. But I keep challenging you to read this sermon, this, this conversation, from beginning to end. Begin in Matthew chapter 5. Read all the way through Matthew chapter 7. And if you do that, what you'll find is, pretty early on in the conversation, pretty early on in the, the sermon, Jesus looks at the people sitting around him on the hillside there, and he said, let's talk about sex. And I suppose that that probably got their attention. Because that always gets people's attention. Now I keep telling you every week a couple things about the Sermon on the Mount. First is, is it's incredibly practical. Jesus is teaching to change lives. And what he's talking about is so practical. It was for them, it is for us. And the other thing I keep reminding you of is Jesus is teaching about kingdom life. He's trying to give these people, and I think us, He's trying to give us a glimpse of what life in the kingdom should look like and what kingdom-focused people will act like. So in this section, he says, who here has, has a problem when it comes to sex? And he says this, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully 
has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, stop right there. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Yes, they had heard that said. They knew the law. They knew the rules. That was number seven on the top ten list. Thou shalt not commit adultery. They knew what God said about adultery. And they knew what God meant. They knew what that law meant. That law to them meant that you're not to have any kind of sexual relations with anyone outside the bonds of marriage. You can call it sleeping around. You can call it unfaithfulness. You can call it whatever you want. God calls it adultery. And no matter what you call it, Scripture is very clear about what God thinks about adultery. He doesn't like it. It means betrayal, deceit, unfaithfulness. It causes catastrophic damage. It's wrong. It was wrong then, and it's wrong now. Adultery has always violated God's will. So yeah, they knew what the law was. They knew what the rules were concerning adultery. They knew what Proverbs said. Adultery is a brainless act, self-destructive, and a reputation ruined for good. He who sleeps with another man's wife or even touches her will never go unpunished. These people were aware of what God had to say concerning adultery. But remember, Jesus is trying to launch a new movement here. Jesus is trying to speak to their heart. And Jesus knows that there were some people who thought because just, they, just because they hadn't committed the actual act that they were A-OK on the sexual front. That just because they hadn't committed the actual act of adultery, they were fine. They didn't have a problem. And they got kind of smug about it. And they felt a little bit superior about it. But they were still broken, as we all are. And their brokenness was affecting their sexuality, as it always does. And they desperately needed God, as we all do. So Jesus tells these people, listen, you know what God says concerning adultery. You know what God says about sexual relations outside the bonds of marriage. You know what that's about. But in the kingdom... We're drawing the line in a different place. See, you always thought the line was drawn in a bedroom somewhere with some specific act. She says in the kingdom, we're drawing the line somewhere else. We're not drawing the line in a bedroom. We're, we're backing way up. In the kingdom, we're not even going to look at a woman lustfully. We're not even going to look at a woman and have improper thoughts. Jesus is saying in, the, in this new movement, we're going to live better than that. And we're going to love better than that. Listen again to what he, what he says. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, men, he's talking to us. And this isn't just about a sexual act. It's about honoring women. It's about the way that we honor women. It's about understanding that it is degrading, it is immoral, it's sinful. When we view the opposite sex as just a, someone with you know, a group of body parts. Jesus is talking to all of those who, who think they're okay on the sexual front. But they're still dealing with 
with women in a very degrading way. Now maybe you've been in a restaurant or somewhere and you know, when a husband and a wife sit down and a waitress walks by and maybe she's very attractive or maybe she's dressed in a certain way and you notice that the husband just stares at her. And the husband's eyes just, just follow her all around the room. When that happens, that man isn't viewing that woman as, as somebody's daughter or somebody's mother or somebody's sister. He's not viewing her as the image bearer of God. He's using her. He's viewing that woman as, as a collection of body parts. And he thinks no one notices. But of course, someone does notice. His wife notices. And she feels humiliated and devalued and threatened. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount here, he's talking about looking for the purpose of lusting. And maybe it's become so habitual that you don't even think about it anymore. But Jesus, remember, wants to change your heart. He wants to change the way you think so that you'll change the way you act. So he has some more advice here. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. What? <laughs> now put yourself on the hillside that day. What? Jesus, well, what are you talking about? Are you saying I'm supposed to be mutilating my body you know, to make sure that this doesn't happen? I don't think so. I think what Jesus is saying, because I think what Jesus understands is, this isn't about your eyes, and it's not about your hands, it's about your heart. He's, he's talking about our heart. It's a heart issue. Where's your focus? Where's your faith? Again, Jesus wants to change our hearts. See, God's desire for us isn't just that we don't sin. I don't think God created us in His image just so he could look back one day, you know, step back one day and say, well, at least they're not murdering anyone. At least they're not committing adultery. I think we were created for more than that. I think God has a much bigger picture in mind. You know, if, if, if my only goal in life was to never sin, I'd lock myself in a room somewhere and never come out. But I think there's more to life than that. See, I think God's goal is, is this new humanity, this... This movement where, where women and men with transformed hearts start honoring each other with their words, with their lives, with their hearts, start honoring God with their words and their lives and their hearts. And that's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, really pretty early on in the sermon, I want you to get your sexuality right. It is so important because it's such a beautiful gift. And it is. It's a beautiful gift given to a husband and a wife. God expects us to take the commitment very, very seriously. Not just a, a commitment to our spouse, but a commitment to God as well. And a commitment to His standards in the, in the area of sexuality. You look back in the Old Testament. Job was a guy who I, I think understood what, what Jesus was trying to say there in the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount. Job says this about his um, innocence in dealing with the opposite sex. I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. There's that word covenant again. 
Notice it keeps coming up in this series. I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Interesting choice of words that Job uses. But I think it's exactly what Jesus is talking about. What's a covenant? It's a promise, right? It's a commitment. Job is saying, I'm making a promise, I'm making a commitment that with God's help, and by the way, it will take God's help. You're going to need God's help on this. With God's help, I'm not going to look at a woman with the idea of gratifying myself sexually. I'm not going to use a woman in that way. I'm not going to treat another woman that way. Job says, I'm making commitment. I'm not going to, tr I'm not going to treat another woman that way. I'm not going to treat my wife that way. And I'm not, I'm not going to dishonor God that way either. And then Jesus says this. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. Anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. I'm going to borrow a phrase from Gary right now, and I'm going to ask you to listen to what I have to say very generously. I'm asking for a little bit of grace as we talk the rest of our time this morning. I'm asking you to, to listen in, in the spirit of Christ. Because I know there are a lot of you sitting right now thinking, please don't talk about this. Let's not talk about this. But we've got to talk about it. And I know some of you are probably thinking, yeah, let's talk about it. I want to see if the preacher agrees with me because I got it figured out. Well, I'm not sure I got it all figured out yet, but I'm working on it, so I'm asking for some grace. Divorce is as an emotional issue as anything we could talk about. I knew when I began a sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount, before I even started putting it together, I knew that Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 was going to be waiting for me. And I have very prayerfully considered the best way to share information in, in a sermon setting. Like I said, I don't know that Jesus could have introduced a more volatile subject when he, when he brought up the subject of divorce. Because it is a subject that touches and affects just about every person in this room in one way or another. It is more emotionally charged than probably anything else we could talk about this morning. And you know what? It should be. It should be an emotional issue. We should get emotional about divorce. It, it, it's ruining families. It's tearing at the very fiber of our society. But here's where I'm asking for some grace, because I've got a couple of things I want to share with you. And again, I'm, I'm going to ask you to listen in the, in the spirit of Christ. And the first is this. I'm convinced that the solution for divorce isn't better doctrine, but better marriages. And I say that, and I put it up on the screen, and you might be thinking, what a cop-out. It's just a cop-out. It's not. I am convinced it is not a cop-out. We can argue the nuances of Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, but with all my heart, I believe that the real answer for the growing divorce rate in, in, in our society and the church, for that matter, as well, isn't better doctrine. I think it's better marriages more Christ-centered marriages. Now, be sure you don't put words in my mouth. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be searching the Scripture for a truer, more biblical understanding on the issue of divorce and remarriage. I'm not saying that. Absolutely, we're to be searching the Scriptures. 
All I'm saying is, I think it's more important that we search the Scriptures for a truer, more biblical concept of marriage. And maybe a truer, more biblical concept of grace. Because here's what I know. God loves marriages. Marriage was His idea. God blesses marriages. God takes a, a man and a woman who want to be husband and wife and God joins them together. They become one. And that's not just poetic rhetoric that you know, us preachers spout off during wedding ceremonies. It's something that actually happens. And I can't exactly explain it, but I know that God does it. Marriage is covenant. There's that word again, covenant. It's promise. Made between a, a person and themselves. Made between a person and their spouse. It's a covenant made between a couple and God. And if you ever wonder just how seriously God takes the covenant of marriage, read the second half of Ephesians chapter 5. He takes it pretty seriously. It's a pretty big deal to God. Breaking that covenant, breaking the promise is a sin. Divorce always involves sin. God's desire is for a man and a woman to be married and, and live together for the rest of their lives. Malachi chapter 2, verse 16 says, God hates divorce. And He does. He does hate divorce. He hates what it does to families. He hates what it does to children. He hates the emotional and the spiritual scars that, that it inflicts. He hates the emotional and the spiritual scars that linger long after the papers are signed. But here's the second thing that, that I want to share with you. And again, I'm asking for some grace. Because while the Bible does say that God hates divorce, the Bible never says that God hates divorced people. You will not find that in God's Word. And you will not find that in God's heart. God loves divorced people. God loves those of you who have suffered through a divorce just as the same as He loves those of you who have 50 years behind you. I'm convinced that God's grace covers every single Christian issue involving, including uh, divorce. God's grace covers that. And I want to say this to, to those of you who have been divorced. If you've ever been in a church and you've been made to feel like maybe you don't quite belong, if you've ever been in a church and you've been made to feel like maybe you're kind of a second-class Christian because of your marital status, I am so sorry. I am so sorry that you've ever been made to feel that way. Because that's not kingdom life. And that's not kingdom love. Again, listen to what I'm saying, saying in the Spirit of Christ. I'm not condoning. I'm not trivializing divorce. God's Word is clear. There's sin. Sin's involved in divorce. Or maybe it's one partner. Usually it's both. Divorce breaks God's heart. But thanks be to the blood that dripped from the cross that that blood covers that as well. And where do sinners go? We go to the foot of the cross. Yeah, there's, the, there's sin in divorce, but it's not the unforgivable sin. Sinners gathered at the foot of the cross with all us other sinners, by the way, who are unworthy of God's grace. Charles Morrison said this, 
The church is a society of sinners, the only society in the world in which membership is based upon the single qualification that the candidate should be unworthy of membership. Now you've got to read that a couple of times, and you've got to think about that a little bit to really get it, but it's pretty good, and I think it's pretty accurate. The church is a healing place for sinners, all sinners. We're all unworthy of the grace that God has given us. You belong here. If you're a sinner, if you're struggling, you belong here with all the rest of us other struggling sinners. So we're going to accept you. Because I'm convinced church is the place where hope is found. And we're going to help you. Because somebody helped us. And we're going to love you. Because I know how much Jesus loves you. I, I wish I had gentle enough words talk about this because there is no hurt that God can't heal and there's no sin that God can't forgive you might have had been horribly betrayed you might have felt abuse or, or pain God's a God who specializes in wiping tears from eyes he's a God who specializes in, in comforting and healing it's what he does and I hope you run to him today. You belong here. And through belonging, people discover the joys of believing and becoming. You know, some people will tell you, well, first you have to, first you have to, to believe, and then you become, and then you belong. I think Jesus is saying, no, you belong, and then you believe, and then you'll spend the rest of your life becoming. We're all working on it. We're all trying to get closer to the heart of God. The most tender need of the human heart is love. That's why it's so important to keep Jesus' teaching on sexuality in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. There's a reason why Jesus talks about it when he does and where he does. Remember how the, the Sermon on the Mount began? Blessed. You're blessed. You're blessed. Not not those of you who the world thinks should be blessed. Now, Jesus is saying, not just the, the beautiful, not just the supermodels, not just the rich, not just the powerful. No, you. You're blessed. Those of you who are poor in spirit, those of you who are struggling, you're blessed. Blessed are the wrinkled. Blessed are the misshapen. Blessed are the single people. Blessed are the married people. Blessed are the divorced people. Blessed are the people who are struggling with an addiction. Blessed are the people who are carrying around so much shame and guilt in their life. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Not because you're living the perfect life. Not because you got it all together. Not so you can have every selfish desire fulfilled. Blessed because what you really ache for what you really long for, to love and to be loved, to have those kind of relationships that when we put our head on the pillow at night, we say, that's what I long for. Jesus is saying, that's available through me. That is what I'm offering in this new movement. That kind of a relationship with your brothers and sisters, and that kind of relationship with your Heavenly Father. Jesus is saying, what's up there is coming down here. And then those words like, chastity and 
and purity and, and faithfulness, they all start to make a lot more sense to us. Because they all start kind of pointing us towards a relationship that really matters. And relationships that are really meaningful, that honor one another and honor God. Again, you might have made some horrible choices in your past. You might have violated your promises. You might have betrayed your deepest values. You might be carrying around just a, a world of guilt. But listen, Jesus says you're blessed. Jesus says you can still have the life that I'm offering. You can still have it all. Because, again, God is a God who can heal every hurt. And God's a God who can forgive every sin. There's no sin that God won't forgive for the son or the daughter that repents, turns to Him. Blessed. 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 You're blessed. God wants to heal you. God wants to forgive you. That's what He's offering in Christ. So my question this morning is, are you in Christ? Are you taking advantage of the offer that Jesus is, 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 is giving? Are you allowing Jesus to be the Lord of your life? Are you allowing Him to change your heart? Because that's what He wants to do. He wants your heart. This morning as a family, if we can help you in any way, Meet us down front. Let's stand and sing.